You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning, City Church. Uh, My name is Zach Meredith. I'm the group's director here. Uh, Thanks for joining us this morning. Happy Father's Day. Uh, We're excited to be together as we continue going verse by verse uh, through the book of Acts, where we are seeing uh, the church uh, get started, the lowercase c church get started. Uh, We're seeing uh, the gospel being spread to new places that it's never been before, Uh, the first missionary journeys, uh, churches being planted. It's a really cool scene that we're walking through, and it's it's really cool because all those things we are passionate about today, right, at City Church, passionate about doing. Uh, once again, as you know, you saw the video. I don't know how I'm supposed to go after that camp video and that song. Uh, but welcome back, our middle school, high school students. It looked like they had an awesome time. We were praying for them all week. Um, but uh, uh, we're excited about what God is doing in our student ministry and working through our student ministry. And I was just thinking uh, last week, um, you know, we had an awesome kids camp. Uh, we had a great uh, students camp. Uh, salt services have been going on all summer. We're actually going to start doing uh, salt services on campus, which is really cool the rest of the summer. Uh, city groups are in full swing, uh, going through the book of Acts. We're in the middle of Let's Go. It's a really, really cool time uh, to be a part of City Church, and we're just so thankful of what God is doing uh, in our church and in Tallahassee. Uh, we have a men's event tomorrow night. We'd love for you to join us uh, as we uh, get to hear um, from people on staff and just have dinner together as well. But today, we are going to be uh, picking up where our students director, uh, Jake Axon, left off last week. And if, if you weren't able to listen to it or you, maybe you're out of town, I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to it. He did a phenomenal job walking through a pretty difficult uh, passage. Uh, I learned a lot from it, uh, and I really appreciated it. I hope you did too. But he, he covered the scene of these two Christians, these two missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, who had been working together. Well, they have a disagreement over what to do with a guy named John Mark, and they actually split. And they're both leading different missionary journeys right now. Right? They're, they're both uh, uh, preaching the gospel. They're both making disciples They're basically living out Jesus' marching order that Jesus gave before he ascended in Acts 1-8 where he says, you know, you'll be my witnesses to uh, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. They are doing that now. They're living that out. They are going. And so today in Acts 16, we're going to look at Paul, his missionary journey. Uh, uh, Barnabas and John Mark are doing theirs, but we're going to be with Paul today where Luke, who's the author of the Gospel of Luke and of Acts, he's with Paul. This guy named Silas is with Paul. And then this guy named Timothy is with Paul. So these four guys together on a missionary journey to Europe. The first time the Gospels is going to Europe. And so as we pick up today, we're going to see these four guys go into a city, plant a church, share the life-changing news of the Gospel, And I'm actually going to, it's not a very big section today, so I'm going to read it top to bottom, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive in. So we're going to be in Acts 16, starting in verse 11. Acts 16, verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, the next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, 
a Roman colony, a leading city of the district of Macedonia. And we stayed, so this is called, this is part of the we section of Acts. This is Luke, because he's with them. He's saying we, because he's there as well. So we stayed in that city for several days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside to the city, outside the city gate by the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, and she urged us, If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Verse 16, Once, as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us, who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days. Paul was greatly annoyed. Turning to the spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. That is a happy Father's Day message right there. (sighs) Let's pray together and then we're going to jump in. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time where we get to dive into your word. I pray that you would teach us. God, I pray that we would be uh, molded by your scripture, by your truth, that we would uh, love you more after diving into your word, that uh, we would live out what you teach us today. Uh, Please be with us. In your name I pray. Amen. So as we just read, we see Paul right, and his companions travel to a city called Philippi, and they stay there for many days, and we can assume that they preach the gospel. We, we see it a couple times here, but they were faithful in preaching the gospel, and that a lot of people come to know the Lord. We can assume that because later on, about 12 years later, Paul writes a letter to the church in Philippi called Philippians, right? And so there is a church there, And so in this section, in chapter 16, Luke, the author, he decides to highlight three particular conversions that happen in Philippi. There are many more, right, but he wants to highlight three of them. Two we're going to look at today, and then one we're going to look at next week. But he highlights these because he wants to demonstrate and show how God is breaking down cultural dividing barriers, and uniting such different types of people in Christ. So let's go back and look at verse 13. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by a river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. So scholars can assume that there is no synagogue in Philippi or else they would have gone there on the Sabbath and prayed. So they have to go and find the next best thing, and that is outside the city gate by a river called the place of prayer. And so they get there, and there are already people there, right? They, they, they got beat. There's a group of women there, and they're praying. And we're introduced to a very popular figure in Acts, this lady named Lydia. Look at verse 14. It says, a God-fearing woman named Lydia a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira was listening. So Luke introduces this character, Lydia, and he tells us a lot of things about her. Some explicitly, some we, we uh, infer. First is that she's Greek, 
okay? She, he tells where she's from, so she's Greek. Second, she's a, a business owner, right? And, and the thing that she sells is a very prestigious color in purple dye. So we can conclude that, that she's probably very well off financially. So we have this Greek, very successful business owner. And then Luke says and mentions and describes her, which is very interesting, as a God-fearing woman. It is interesting because that means somewhere along the way in her business interactions with Jewish people, she was introduced to this thing called God, and she believed in it, but she didn't know much more after that. And if she's down with the, the women praying, well, that means that she's seeking to learn more about God. And this isn't the first time we've run across someone like this in Acts. Think about uh, uh, Cornelius, the soldier in Acts 10, knew about God, believed in God, was a God-fearing man, but wanted to know more. Think about in Acts 8, the Ethiopian official believes in God, but he's sitting there reading Old Testament going, I have no clue what this talk is talking about. And God intervenes. And so look what it says after she hears Paul speaking to them. The Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. And right there, in this verse, for the first time, we have a conversion on European soil. You know, we read and we talk about, like, the, to the ends of the earth. Well, right, this is the ends of the earth. It's being pushed and expanded. And I, I love this scene in this story because of how normal right, and how calm it is. Like, it's a quiet place, but by a river, people are praying. There is a person seeking truth, seeking to know more about God or whatever that is. You see a Christian, a faithful Christian come and share their faith, share the gospel, share what Jesus has done in their life, and then the Lord moves in that way. It's, it's a very good picture of everyday faithfulness leads to life change, and, and I think in Tallahassee life, it may resemble, you know, meeting with a friend and hanging out on Landis and just sharing your story or, or a coffee with somebody or, or a lunch of, of a friend or a neighbor or a family member who just wants to know more. So everyday faithfulness leading to life change. And we also, in that verse, see a very, very true theological truth as well, right? The conversion of Lydia... And the conversion of all of, of every believer in this room, all of us Christians in this room, and Christians from all of history, the conversion takes place not when we, as people, open our hearts to God, but when God mercifully intervenes and changes our hearts. It's like we read in Ezekiel 36. It's a very popular scripture talking about this. It says, I... Talking, God is talking here. I, God, will give you a new heart. You don't give it to me and then I trade with you. No, I give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I remove your heart of stone and I give you a heart of flesh. So what's true for Lydia and every Christian in this room on this planet is that it takes the work of God intervening in our lives, redirecting us from our sinful path that leads to death, removing our heart of stone 
right, that just wants to live out fleshly desires of the world. It's callous to God and His ways. And God gives us a heart of flesh, one that's warm to the gospel, one that's molded by, by Scripture, that's full of life. And we know that God and God alone is the one who does that. Just like Lydia is the one who opens our hearts, opens our ears and our eyes to the Word of God. So what's Lydia's response to this? Verse 15. After, so after God opens her heart, she and her household were baptized. And she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. She persuaded us. So we see three things happen after this. Number one, she's baptized. It's a very cool scene. She's baptized. Second, she shares her faith with her family, and they become believers, and they are baptized. And then the third is that she shares her home with the missionaries. And biblical scholars are pretty confident that they can conclude based on all this that Lydia's home, her home, would be the gathering place for the new church planted in Philippi. It's in her living room, in her dining room. And I think that's so cool because this church was started in a living room. There's cool correlations there. So after this, Lydia here provides such a good example for us of generosity and hospitality. And, and it moved Paul because he writes about this generosity. He writes about the support of this particular church in Philippi. Like 10 to 12 years later when he writes them a letter, the book of Philippians later on in the New Testament. Look at what he says right off the rip in Philippians 1, right from the very beginning, he goes, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. Every time I remember the church in Philippi, I thank God. Always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day, right, Lydia's conversion, the church being planted until now. And then again, a couple chapters later in chapter 4, verse 15, it says, And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, so when I was there, when, when Lydia was converted, when we started the church, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except for you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. The hospitality, the generosity displayed by that was spearheaded by Lydia and the church, it, it, it moves Paul. And it's a great example for us with Lydia's new life. It, we can assume comes new priorities, right? Comes a new family, a body of believers, comes a new mission. So their time in Philippi seems to be going very well, right? They get there, they can't find a synagogue, they go down to a river. There are people there. They want to talk about Jesus. People are converted, a lot of people are baptized. A church is planted. Things are going awesome. God is at work. But as we keep on reading, we'll see that Satan is at work too. Let's pick up in verse 16. So once as we were on our way to prayer, so once again, they're going down by the river. All I can think about is Chris Farley's SNL sketch in a van down by the river. I just had to say it because I was trying to suppress it. That's all I can think about. But continue. They're going down by the river. <laughs> there it is again. And a slave girl met us who had a spirit 
in which she predicted the future. It says she made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. Okay, so Luke now introduces another central figure in this passage, a demon-possessed slave girl. And we know two things about her. Luke tells us two things about her. Number one, she's demon-possessed by a spirit that can, like, fortune-tell or predict the future. And number two, because of that, her owners exploit her, and they make a lot of money doing it. And this poor girl is being held captive spiritually and physically by a demon and abusive owners. Verse 17, she followed Paul and us. So she just follows them around, chirping at them, saying, these men, right, pointing to them, these men that are walking, they're trying to share the gospel with people. They're trying to pray. They're trying to gather people and tell them about Jesus. And she's just behind them going, hey, these men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation, they are the servants of the Most High God. And she did this for many days, the Energizer Bunny. She just kept going. Many days. These guys are the servants of the Most High God. And I want to pause right there and zoom out a little bit. So we see a demon-possessed girl, a demon placed by Satan in her, following around these missionaries and seemingly proclaiming that their message is true, right? That their message leads to salvation, that they are servants of the Most High God. And you think, wouldn't that be counterproductive to Satan's plans and goals, right? His goal is to lure as many people away from the gospel as possible. So it's a bad strategy at first glance. They're, 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 they're affirming the message of the gospel. Well, R. Kent Hughes says this about the strategy used by Satan. He says, Satan's strategy, he said it was obvious, to derail the gospel by infiltrating it, by forming an apparent alliance with Christ's work for Satan's own end. Then he concludes, he says, he, so Satan, loves to distort the gospel just enough to twist it into a deadly heresy. So what Satan is doing is he's using this slave girl to try and associate and tie together the missionary's message of the gospel with his lies. Tries to piggyback his inferior message on top of the powerful message of the gospel that the missionaries were proclaiming. It's like when Georgia wins the national championship and Florida fans chant SEC and get all happy. It's the same thing going on right here. I had to throw that dig in there. But just like these missionaries are, we must be vigilant against the twisting of theology and scripture because it happens today too. It really does. Hey, let's not talk about that verse because we want to look like this in the world's eyes. That theological, yeah, I, I just don't think we should believe that because we're going to be treated like this. So let's just, let's, let's brush that one under the rug and not talk about that. Oh, those are the old Christians. We're the new Christians. We're hip. We want to be looked at as awesome in the eyes of the world. We twist scripture, twist theology. And Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, these missionaries, they do not fall prey 
to the evil schemes behind the girl's words. Because the words are very true, right? But the intention behind them, it was evil. And we actually see this exact same type of interaction between demon-possessed people and Jesus in the Gospels. And what does Jesus do every single time? He rebukes them. Right? Look at ver- uh, Mark 5. It's not going to be on the screen. But Mark 5, 7 through 8, it says, When he saw Jesus, when a demon-possessed man sees Jesus from a distance, he runs up and kneels before him. And the demon-possessed man cries out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God. Very true statement right there. I beg you before God, don't torment me. Jesus says, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Rebukes him. Another scene in Luke 4. Demon-possessed man, leave us alone. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Very true statement. Have you come to destroy us? The demon goes, I know who you are the Holy One of God. Very true statement. But Jesus rebukes him and says, be silent and come out of him. We see Jesus display his authority over the spiritual realm and demon possession over and over and over in his ministry on earth. And we can conclude that while Paul, he wasn't there to see those scenes happen firsthand, he was around guys and talked with guys who did see it firsthand. They're on a campfire can you believe that one time that dude ran up to Jesus and we went and hid and he was like, get out of him? He heard these stories. He read these stories. And based on that knowledge, look at how Paul responds to this demon-possessed girl in verse 18. It says, he was greatly annoyed. I love that because it makes him so much more relatable. This girl's trying, he's greatly annoyed. All the older brothers and sisters in this room are like, amen. I got you, Paul, I understand. And he turned and he said, I command you, listen to this, in the name of Jesus Christ. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. It says, and it came out right away. Paul frees this demon-possessed slave girl spiritually in the name of Jesus, right? And in a moment, Jesus casts out the demon at work in the girl. And he proves once again that he has all authority under heaven and earth has been given to him. And what a relief this must have been for the girl, right? Suddenly, you know, she's in her right mind after her encounter with Jesus. She has a new spiritual owner, right? The good shepherd who frees her from her spiritual bondage, who frees her from her spiritual oppression, who gives her peace and freedom and joy and rest. And while it doesn't say it, in the text, we can assume, based on a couple things, where Luke puts her in between Lydia and then next week the jailer who was both converted, that she was converted in that moment. That God changed her heart. That, that her interaction with Jesus converts her, and she's a believer, and scholars know that she was a part of that church in Philippi, along with the jailer along with Lydia in her house. It's an incredible story. And next week, we're going to see the real-world ramifications of freeing this girl spiritually because now her owners don't make any more money, and they're ticked, and they get Paul and Silas thrown in jail, but God is going to work through them 
in jail to convert more people for the gospel. So as we conclude looking at this passage this morning of both Lydia and the slave girl's conversion, I want to ask a question, well, what does this teach us about God? What does this passage, these few verses, teach us about God, about His character, about His actions, about His will? And I think we can pull out four things from this Scripture. What does it teach us about God? Number one, that God is the one who opens our hearts to the gospel, that God is the one. Like I said before, if you are a believer in this room, this has happened to you. That's awesome news. It's happened to me. That God has revealed himself and opened your eyes to life in Christ. And there is a a huge difference of what it looks like to live before that happens and after that happens. And Ephesians 2 does a great job showing us that difference. Let's look at Ephesians 2, chapter 1. Or Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. It says, in you, us, Christians, says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world. We can pause a side note. Ways of the world equal what? Dead and sin. According to the ruler of the power of the air and the spirit now working in its disobedience, verse 3, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were, by nature, children under wrath, as the others were also. If we stop it right there, that's a very, very bad place to be. Children of wrath, dead in our sins. But right here, but God. So, despite what all we just read, how bad and evil we were against God, but God, who is rich in mercy, why is he rich in mercy? Because of his great love that he has for us has now made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in our trespasses, we are alive in Christ. It says you are saved by grace. You are saved by grace. Not what I did a little bit and what God did a little bit and we mix it together and now I'm saved. No, it's by God and God alone, saved by grace through faith. Now, I've heard it said before, I don't think there's any ill intention behind it, but I've heard it said before, you know, if you're drowning in life, right, if you're drowning in life and just, you know, the waves and the storms are too much and you're doggy paddling, you're just above water and you're about to sink, it's just life has been so hard, God has already thrown out a life preserver, right? And all you got to do is just reach out. All you do is reach out. It's there. Just reach out and grab it. I think that that diminishes the gospel. I think the gospel is way, way more powerful than that, right? We weren't drowning. Ephesians didn't say we were struggling or drowning in our sins and trespasses. What does it say? It says we were dead in them, dead, not struggling. We were dead, the bottom of the sea, like laying in the sand, looking up with no hope. And Jesus looks down and sees us in our hopeless state, what does he do? He doesn't throw out a life preserver. He dives in there. He swims to the bottom, picks you up, drags you back to the shore, breathes life into you, making you a new creation. That's the gospel that we proclaim, right? Jesus, in my place, 
on the cross, paying for my sins. I do nothing to contribute to salvation. And now, being alive in Christ, we look at our friends, we look at our neighbors, we look at our family, those who are dead in their sin, and we're charged to tell them about Jesus, right, and His work in our lives, because the gospel literally is life-changing. And we can trust that in those conversations, God is at work. And that brings us to the second thing that we can know about God through this section of Scripture is that God is at work in our evangelism efforts. God is at work in our conversations, right? God is at work when we are faithful of telling others about Him. You know, although whatever the Bible study or message that Paul delivered to the women by the river and Lydia, those were his words, God, God gave him those words, but the salvation work, well, that was God's. Now, Paul's preaching his words. He's probably, you know, he probably made a compelling argument, but his words in and of themselves were not so persuasive and so irresistible. No, it was God working through Paul's preaching. And without the hand of the Lord, I think this is a re, like a, a very true reality, without the hand of the Lord at work, in our evangelistic pursuits and, and conversations, we're ineffective. We waste our breath. But we know that that's not the case at all. We know that as Christians, God works through us for His good. We know as Christians, we're given the Holy Spirit. We're giving a command to go and tell. God gives us the Holy Spirit to help with that, to work through our conversations as we seek to live out the Great Commission. It's a great thing. And point three, something we can learn about God from this section is that God's children consist of all types of people, right, united under one father. You know, if, uh, even looking around here, I've been to other churches, been uh, internationally to churches, you know that the body of Christ is a very diverse group made up of a lot of different kinds of people. And this passage, Luke highlights two conversions, well, really three, because the jailer next week, but two conversions of people on the opposite ends of the spectrum to prove this point. Biblical scholar F.F. Bruce says that he does it on purpose to show how the saving name of Jesus proved its power in the lives of the most diverse people. Right? We can contrast, compare and contrast the two today. Lydia, respectable, wealthy business owner, the slave girl, poor, someone that's broken, tormented, oppressed. Lydia comes to faith in a quiet Bible study down by the river. Lydia, or uh, the slave girl, is rescued through a very dramatic and powerful encounter. But how are they similar? Well, both of these ladies are brought to faith in Jesus. It's a great reminder for us that the gospel can transform all different types of people with all different sorts of backgrounds. And it's a great reminder that no one is too far from the gospel. No one is too far gone at all. But we know that the power that opened Lydia's heart is the exact same power that brought the slave girl out of being possessed. It's the power of Jesus. And that leads to point number four, is that we know that God, based on this passage, we know that God has authority over everything in heaven and earth. God has authority over everything. And Jake mentioned last week uh, 
how God worked through in his sovereign hand and authority worked through the dispute between Paul and Barnabas. I, it did, sometimes we have this thought like, oh man, God is sitting there going, oh, they're fighting again. Now I got to change my plan. Oh, they're always doing that. No, he knew, right? He obviously knew. And he worked through that. How does he work through that? Well, now there are two missions journeys going on, right? He opens up a spot, calls Timothy off the bench, says, let's go. I have a spot for you on the team. He gives Silas and Luke a new missionary journey. He gives John Mark a second chance. He gives Barnabas a chance to lead again. And what do we see? Now there are two missionary journeys going out. People are hearing the gospel. New churches are planted. People are being saved. A lot of the New Testament is written based on what's happening here, right? The Gospel of Mark, Luke, Acts, First and Second Timothy, Philippians is a letter written to the church we just saw planted. Like half of the rest of the New Testament are letters to churches that we're going to read about being planted here. And then what, like 2,000-ish years later, we are sitting here on a Sunday reading this. And God is teaching us and molding us through this, through these circumstances. It's incredible. We see God's hand, especially in the book of Acts, right? We see God's hand at work woven all throughout the story here, both in its miraculous events, right? Pentecost, whoa, is awesome. Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, right? Acts 2, thousands and thousands of people are coming to be a part of the church daily. God is working. And then also the dire, the dire times, right? Where it looks like all hope is lost. And is this gospel thing really going to keep on going? Now, Peter thrown in jail, tormented, beaten. He comes back out preaching the gospel. Paul, shipwrecked. Paul and Silas thrown in jail. Stephen, executed for being a believer. Uh, even last week, Paul and Barnabas, butting heads, splitting up. No, God is at work through it all. And his authority is displayed through his work in Lydia and the slave girl. Authority over events on the earth, authority over salvation, opening hearts, authority over Satan and his demons, authority over both the physical and spiritual realm. We can take rest in that. So the four, four things, God opens our hearts to the gospel. He can only do that, only him. God works through our evangelism efforts. He works in our conversations. God's children consist of all different types of people, but are united under one father. And then God has authority over everything on heaven and earth. And I think these things, I know these things should encourage us, right? As we seek to live differently here in Tallahassee, as we seek to do what they are doing, right? Making disciples, baptizing, uh, uh, teaching, planting churches. Now we can look at this and be encouraged, we can look at who God is through this and be encouraged as we seek to live out the Great Commission here in Tallahassee. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this time uh, in your word. I pray that uh, you would mold us and shape us through what we learned today. God, we thank you for being a God who has all authority over everything, a God that works through us, that uses us. God, please correct us when we try to take credit for things that 
it's you working in and not us, God, but thank you for using us. I pray that we would be uh, found faithful to live out the gospel, to tell others about you and that you would work through that. Thank you for this church and what you're doing through it. In your name I pray, amen.